All right, so before we begin, I would just like to state for the record that today is October 28, 2022, and my name is Ben Bauman, and I'm in Indianapolis, Indiana, speaking via phone with Teresa Lubbers, and we're doing an interview for the Indiana Legislative Oral History Initiative. So just starting off, when and where were you born? I was born in Indianapolis in 1951. Okay, and uh, what were your parents' names? My father's name was Richard Smith, and my mother's name was Evelyn Smith. Okay. And uh, when did your family move to Indiana? Well, my, uh, you mean in terms of how far back I yes. moved my family? Uh, well, my uh, father's uh, parents were the first generation in Indiana, uh, and my mother's parents were in Indiana, and her then the grandparents would have been in Indiana. Beyond that, I don't know how much farther I could go back. I think as far back as I can know on my mother's side, I think they've only they were only in Indiana. Okay, sounds good. Uh, what were your parents' occupations? My father was involved most of his life in the auto industry. He. Um, he started off by selling cars and then eventually owned a uh, small Chrysler Plymouth dealership uh, on the east side of Indianapolis. Uh, my mother um, was a stay-at-home mother until I was in high school, and then she started working in what would have been considered to be supportive administrative secretarial roles, starting with Morris Plan and then um, moved and finished the last probably 20 years of her working life um, at Warren Township in the administration building. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, did you have any siblings? I have a brother uh, who is uh, 18 months older than I am who lives in Carmel and is a physician. Oh, okay. Um, how would you describe your childhood growing up? I had a... I had a wonderful childhood. I had uh, friends around me, a very loving, supportive family, uh, no, you know, trauma that I would, that I would point to, which would have been, you know, different than my mother came from. My mother came from a very poor, uh, had some real troubles in her background that was, and really was the first generation to really break a cycle of poverty in her family. Um, Okay. She, but anyway, uh, my, my, you know, I um, uh, had was very in, you know involved with friends in the neighborhood. Always very involved in our church. Um, so I had a lot of stability in my life, um, a lot of encouragement. Even though I, I'm really at sort of the cusp generation in terms of women getting involved in a lot of things, um, but my parents uh, never raised me any differently than my brother in terms of being able to have you know, a meaningful career and as well as, you know, a happy family life. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, who were the most influential people in your childhood? In my childhood, aside from my family, which obviously would have been, uh, I would say I had um, both Sunday school teachers who were very influential in my life and classroom teachers who were very influential in my life. Um, I... You know, ended up at that point. You know, my first job was as a high school English teacher, but I, so I would say, you know, educators, uh, both you know, spiritual educators and academic educators in the schools were probably the most influential in my life at an early age. Right. 
And um, what did you know about your family's political beliefs growing up? Well, my family was always very, they were never, you know, precinct committee men. They were, they would never have missed an opportunity to vote. I think that my, my paternal grandparents uh, were leaned Democrat, were probably more like Roosevelt kind of Democrats. Okay. Um, and uh, probably when I went to work for Dick Luger was the first time that my grandmother had probably voted Republican. Oh, wow. Uh, she probably voted the Repu- Republican the rest of her life. Uh, after that, my mother, I think, came, as I said, as I mentioned before, came from a very um, poor background. Um, I'm not sure that politics would have dominated any of their dinner conversations, but I think they would have leaned Republican. Oh, okay. Interesting. And uh, what schools did you attend growing up? Well, I was always in Warren Township schools. Uh, I graduated from Warren Central in 1969. And I went to, uh, you know, back then they weren't middle schools, they were junior high. So I went to what was, um, uh, you know, the junior high that fed into to Warren at that time. Um, and then went to the grade schools in Warren Township. So I was, for, for 12 years, I was always in Warren Township schools. Yeah, okay. Did you have any favorite subjects in school? You know, I always, I leaned toward, um, in the fact that I became an English teacher, uh, I was a big reader always. Um, I loved uh, history. I probably, as unfortunately, a lot of girls at that point probably didn't have as much encouragement in math or science as girls get today. I can actually remember a teacher of mine in high school basically telling me not to worry about math. Um, and um, so I would say, you know, I, I leaned toward uh you know, probably English, history, government, those kinds of courses um, would be probably the ones I, I loved. Um, I also did um, probably the most involved I was in anything outside of that is I was very involved with the speech team for all the years that I was in high school. And um, in fact, I didn't know that the NFL had anything to do with football until I was older. I thought it was the National Forensic League. Oh. <laughs> uh, so almost every Saturday when I was in high school, I went to a speech meet. And wow. I did drama interpretation during that time. I did a little bit of debate. Um, actually went to school with Jane Polly, and uh, she was on the speech team at that point, too. Um, and so that that was sort of the, my big extracurricular activity in when I was in high school. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. Um, and how did you view Indiana growing up? Well, it's interesting because uh, when you think about Warren at that point, uh, you know, my it was it was very rural, even in, in, in the east side of Indianapolis. I didn't have there wasn't an African American student at Warren when I went there, and it's now a majority minority population. Wow! Um, the bus drivers were far, or a lot of them were farmers who drove buses, as well as being farmers. Um, so, um, you, you know, I didn't know anything but Indiana. We weren't, we didn't travel much. I do remember when I was eight years old going to Washington, D.C. And a, and a few other trips, but we were not, you know, we didn't take a lot of trips. My dad, well, my dad, when I was very young, it was before they passed the blue laws in Indiana, and car dealerships were open seven days a week. Okay. And my dad worked seven days and six nights. Wow, jeez. Um, and uh, so, you know, I think... I guess what I thought is that I, I I would have thought that Indiana would be typical for any place because I hadn't been exposed to that much 
else. Yeah. I did start doing when I was in high school. I did some mission trips other places. Um, we went to Oklahoma, um, did some trips like that that kind of began. But we didn't do any international travel at all. Um, so I, Indiana was, I guess I would say, normal. And um, even now, I would say that, you know, when I travel, um, I know when, when I get off the plane, I know I'm where I belong. Yeah, okay, that's interesting, yeah. Um, now, what did you do after high school? I went to Indiana University. Uh, I don't, you know, there's no big discussion about going to school, any school other than a public school in Indiana. You know, I would say of the graduating class at Warren in my year, maybe 30 to, I, I don't know this for certain, but if I had to guess, I'd say about a third went on to college. Yeah. Um, and my brother went to Indiana University. I was sort of, I was sort of deciding between, for some reason, when I think back, Ball State and IU, but I knew, I had, I was comfortable with IU, um, and my, a lot of the ones who I did know who were going to college, a lot of them were going to IU, so I showed up on the college campus in the fall of 1969, which was, of course, an interesting time, not only from the standpoint of more women in, being involved in higher education, and but also Vietnam War, um, Jerry Rubin from the Chicago 7 was on campus the first week I showed up there. We were taught, my RA told us what to do if we were tear gassed. So there was, and it was a interesting time. You were transitioning from, you know, a, a guy like Paul Helmke, who had been the student body president at IU, was Mr. Fraternity kind of guy, to Keith, Punk, Keith, um, uh, Keith Parker, who was a Black Panther who absconded the student body funds and went to Hanoi. Wow. Um, so you had first woman student body presidents at a Big Ten school happen at that time. So it was an interesting, uh, you know, period of, of significant change in society. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely. Um, so what were your political views at that time in college? You know, I think what happened was, um, as I said, I didn't really come from a political family. My, my family voted, but the summer between my uh, freshman and sophomore year, I got on a city bus and went downtown and applied for a job in city government. It happened to be during the years that Dick Luger was mayor. So the next three summers, I worked for the Department of Transportation for the city of Indianapolis. And this was a time when actually there weren't, this was a time of model cities. I mean, Luger was considered to be um, a, a leader in metropolitan government. There weren't that many Republicans who were, as now, in the case as well now, there aren't many Republicans who are mayors of major metropolitan areas now either. Um, but um, so I think that, but it's interesting, even when I think back before that, when I was in high school, I called the mayor's office in Indianapolis and asked if I could interview Luger. And I don't know why I did that. It was for some sort of a project. And I would, and, and they left. So I was just, I went in the office. I'm, I was like 17 or years old, went in and interviewed him. I remember this very well because, again, I was on a city bus and I was using an old-fashioned tape recorder. And when I got on the bus to listen, I hadn't pushed the button right, so I missed the whole interview with him and sort of had to, in my mind, put it all back together again. So I must have had some sort of a, you know, a, a, a thinking that I liked something about politics and government uh, to do that. And then I think the three summers by working in the, in the the for the city of Indianapolis, there were a lot of interns there that were, would sort of get together and you have a chance to be exposed to different aspects of city government. 
I think that probably that and, and just the high regard that I had for Luger, which existed then and existed exists to today, probably cemented my my affiliation with the Republican Party. Yeah, sure. That's interesting. So yeah, it sounds like it was a, a pretty critical time for you in terms of your political development. It was, and it you know it um, it you know I, so when I graduated from college, my uh, I didn't I didn't go through the school of education. I went to the school of liberal arts and English, but I picked up a teaching certificate on the side, which you could do, and uh, I went back and taught it more. Uh, but it was interesting. I, I only taught a year. I loved it. I mean, I still love the teaching part of, of doing things. But um, I had been exposed enough to this bigger world of politics and government. And for, for good reasons, uh, schools are very insulated. I mean, people tend to socialize with teachers if you're a teacher. You tend to, you know, it, it's a very, um, uh, you know, it's a world in and of itself. And I think that's a great thing. But I had this, I was getting ready to start on my master's, and I had this sense that I just wasn't sure that that's what I was supposed to do. And so I, at the end of the year, I decided not to come back the next year and um, applied for a job again in city government. I went to work in the mayor's office at that point as a public information officer um, during the final two years that Luger was mayor of Indianapolis. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And so, let's see, when did you start thinking about, like, getting involved with the Indiana General Assembly? Well, when I went, my very first campaign that I was ever involved with was in 1974 when Luger was running and lost to Birch Bayh. And, um, and then in 1976, Mitch Daniels and I opened up Luger's campaign office on January 1st of 1976 to run against Vance Harkey. Uh, there hadn't been a Republican U.S. Senator for many years we were, I, I think about this often, so this was in January of 1976 for an election that would be that November, and we were criticized for campaigning too long. I mean, think of those election cycles now, they're, yeah. you know, forever, but anyhow, so um, so I worked on the 76 campaign, and then when Luger won, uh, Mitch and I opened up in his office in Washington, D.C., and I worked in that office um, for a few years um, before, and then... Yeah, I met my husband, Mark. I mean, there, there, there are like 22 what I re- refer to as Luger marriages, people who met working for at different times for Dick Luger. Oh, okay. I think it really speaks to the kind of people who were attracted to him. I would also say that I think I'm still correct about this. All 22 marriages, people are still together. Wow. Which is in and of itself pretty amazing. Um, anyway, so um, when we went to D.C., um, my husband was working for, he wasn't my husband then, uh, was working for Luger too. In fact, I was the first person after Mitch who was hired, and Mark was the last. And then, uh, so we worked there. And then, after a few years there, I, I, I knew sort of that I needed to, to spread my wings a little bit again. And I worked, went to work for the National Federation of Independent Business uh, in in Washington D.C., which is the nation's largest small business organization. Most of the people who are members of NFIB have like. 8 to 15 employees, so it was really truly small business. But I worked on the White House Conference on Small Business at that time, so you can see it's continuing to get, it's getting in my blood more and more, and I, I spent most of my adult life at that point. Uh, so then we, uh, after we got married, Mark decided that he was going to apply to go to Harvard Business School, 
And uh, and I thought, well, if he's going to go, so I applied to the Kennedy School. So we were both accepted, and we're headed to Boston um, in the summer of 1980. Um, Luger was being considered as a vice presidential candidate, and Mark was there at the convention. And sort of, we had decided that if Luger won the vice presidency, the nominee at that nomination at that point, that we wouldn't go to school. Well, obviously, he didn't win it, um, and. Um, so we ended up going to Boston. We were there for two years, um, and I got a master's in public administration. My program, you were required to have worked at least five years in the public sector, uh, and then Mark was at the business school. Uh, one of my advisors and teachers was Michael Dukakis. Um, I would say that of the uh, 200 or so people in my program, I was probably one of 10 identifiable Republicans. Mm, okay. um, but it was a really great experience for me because it caused me to really think, what, why am I a Republican if I am? And what do I think about the role of government? And, um, and I think it was, it was a great experience. And I, you know, I had some really great friends there and through the years. And um, so, you know, took me out of my comfort zone a, a bit. But then after that, we ended up moving to St. Louis. He decided to be a real business person for a while. I went to work for a company called Mark Twain Bank Shares, was doing small business consulting. And I went, and I didn't know what I was going to do, but I found a candidate who was running for Congress. And I was most of my background outside of, you know, strictly politics, and that has been really communications. I'm a marketing person. I'm a communications person. I owned my own small communications firm for more than 10 years during the time that I was in the Senate. And so when we went to St. Louis, I was the, the press secretary for a guy who was running for Congress. Um, he didn't win, but then I started my own public relations firm when I was there um, before we moved. And uh, at that time, it was a very, there was a very new concept being started, which were called surgery centers. They didn't, there wasn't such a thing before. And I worked, I had an 80 hour a month contract to do uh, openings for, to help with American Surgery Center, which was, which was out of Phoenix. Long story short, Bob Orr, we're there only about a year. Bob Orr calls one night, he's governor, and says, tries to recruit Mark back to the governor's office. So that's what got us back to Indianapolis. He came back to work for Bob Orr, and I continued my PR firm at that point with the benefit of having a pretty great retainer to start off with. And then I, through the years, I did a lot of work. I worked Cobalt Banker was a client. A lot of startup companies I did work for um, as well. And then that during that time, too, I uh, is when our, both of our daughters were born in um, 84 and 86. Um, and so I was kind of work, doing some work back and forth. And, and then I have a bit of a it's a little bit of a story that is, it, it, what happened was um, there was a woman running for mayor of Indianapolis named Virginia Blankenbaker. And Virginia had been, held the Senate seat that I then ended up holding before. And she decided to step down and run for mayor. And I helped her on that campaign, which was a little dicey because Steve Goldsmith was running. And uh, he won and go forward. I mean, Steve and I are, have been very good friends through the years, and he's helped me with so many education issues, so it was never a bad situation. 
but it was her encouragement from when she she encouraged me to run for the Senate seat. My daughters, our daughters were five and seven at that point, and I and I really wasn't thinking of myself as a candidate. I thought more that I would be supportive of other candidates to the degree that I could, either financially or in other ways. Um, but I looked around, and this may sound a little haughty, and I don't mean for it to, but I looked around at some of the people who were serving, and I thought, you know what, I have, I think I could do that job. Uh, and I had a real commitment, and I, which has continued throughout my career, to both education and economic development, especially the role of small business, because my dad had been a small business owner, I worked for NFIB, um, and the relationship between building a stronger state economy through a stronger, through stronger economic development, business development, and the importance of education. And those were the issues that really caused me to run. Now, I, and this is more information than you need, but it's very important for my story. Um, I, at that point, had done a lot of things politically. Um, as you can tell, I, uh, there was a system then, which still exists, but is under great skepticism right now, in two counties in Indiana, in Lake County and Marion County, the system is called slating. And the precinct committeemen slate a candidate, and you pay a slating fee. And if you're not slated, the expectation is that you won't run. And if you do run, you won't win. Uh, so um, I was, and at the same time, the General Assembly had done away, had just done away with multi-member districts. So John Keeler, John Ruckelshaus, and Paul Manweiler were all in the same district. When they did away with those districts, the, the sense was that John would then run for the Senate seat. And he had only been in for two years, and he was about 10 years younger than I am. But let me just say this right now, that John is a very dear friend of mine. Uh, in fact, I met with him last week. Um, but, you know, So, you know, I, I had Mike McDaniel, who had been a former uh, chairman of the party, um, introduced me at the slating. Mitch Daniels sent a letter in my regard for me, but it was clear that it was a done deal before I went in there. So there were about 130 votes, and I got about maybe 10 or 12 votes. Um, Mike Carroll, who I don't know if you'll know this name either, but there were four four major leaders in Indiana who were killed in a plane crash. Mike Carroll was one of those four who was my, he came, was my counter that day, and the few days after the plane went down and they crashed, I had, I had just received a check from Mike encouraging me to keep running. Anyway, I didn't win the slating. It was a snowy day in January. I came home. Um, my daughters had prepared a queen's chair for me, a party, um, and Virginia was there. My brother had been my campaign chairman along with Judy Singleton, who she and I started the Luger Series, which is a program for women, and it's now 33 years old. But they were there. And, you know, what happened at the Slady, they sort of sequester you into a room. And so they had, they had added another woman to run at that point. I think to potentially maybe take some votes away from me. But, and, so, and John was, you know, he was going to win. I didn't know that. You know, I really didn't know that that's the way it worked. But you're supposed to then get up and they say, have you, have you always and will you always support the slate? And my answer to that was, and I had raised in 40 days, which is a lot of, I had raised 
$20,000 for my campaign, which was a lot of money back then. And so I said, well, I think that the people who are supporting me expect me to stay in the race. So, and there was this hush that went through the room, like it was like heresy. And so I spent the next two weeks pondering about whether I should run or not, knowing that the likelihood of me ever being able to win and the, the, you know, the stain that it would probably put on me politically would be significant. Uh, and so I, and to my husband's credit, who, you know, obviously he's done political stuff too, he, he never really weighed in and say if I should or shouldn't. So about two weeks after I, I lost this lady, I met him for lunch, we were meeting, and I said, I decided I'm not going to run. You know, I can't win, and I've already sort of humiliated myself. Why would I run? And he said, well, whatever you decide. And I knew within 24 hours that it wasn't the right decision. But my five-year-old was in the bathroom talking to me, and I said, Maggie, do you think Mama should run? And she said, you should run, Mom. When I fell off my bike, you told me to get back on again. <laughs> and I thought, you know, the lesson I'm going to give my daughter is either one that I quit when it got hard, even if I lose, you know, which is the better message, or that I stayed in the race, and even if I did lose, you know, I did stay in the race. So I concluded that really more for personal reasons than anything else, that I was going to stay in the race. Yeah. Now, I knew how to run a campaign because I had been involved in so many, and we ran a classic campaign. And I ended up winning the primary by 12 points, which was, and John Ruckel's house showed up at my election night. And um, and throughout my 17 years in the Senate, whenever I was doing something hard or getting killed on something, which happened to me quite often on the education reform things I was doing, I could expect a note from John. He would send me a note. And it was a thrill for me to be able to support him when he later came and ran for the same district. And it was a huge disappointment to me when he lost that district. And it wasn't anything other than the fact that the, the, de- the, the, you know, the district had changed. It was no longer a Republican district. Yeah. But anyway, that's a long story about how I got involved. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's really interesting and really, I think, does a good job of just showing that political development and your journey to the General Assembly. Um, so, did you have any particular campaign strategies then when you were running? Um, you know, I, the issues I ran on were education and economic development. I sort of ran on, you know, Ruckelshaus had a very popular name uh, because Bill, it was his, had been a you know, U.S. EPA, and he'd, been, he'd done all kinds of things, and he was his uncle, his, his dad had been, like, head of the Fraternal Order of Police or something, so he had a really political name. So I sort of ran on the thing. My theme was, not politics as usual. And um, I, I said, you know, she doesn't look like a politician. She doesn't talk like a politician. And I sort of used that kind of thinking, you know, even though I had had, you know, significant political involvement, um, I sort of wasn't your classic candidate. You know, keep in mind then, and unfortunately I think it's still true to a great degree, you didn't have very many women. Yeah. Um, and so... Um, that was sort of my, I sort of carved out, you know, I don't have a name that people know, you know, I uh, I don't look like people you might think, but these are the things, and, I, and, I, and we had, this was, you know, a long time ago, but we had so many yard signs, I mean, it was a yard sign war between John, the two of us, and um, so 
it was, you know, that's kind of the kind of campaign I ran. Yeah. Did you do uh, any uh, door-to-door campaigning? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I did a lot of door-to-door campaigning. In fact, I always had to do door-to-door because even after that, the, you know, in the next 10 elections that I had, when I count both primaries and general elections over those years, because I frequently had, I, I, several times I had a primary opponent, and not always, but I sometimes did, and I, of course, always had a, a general election opponent, and so I, I was going door to door, even in my 2008 election, which was my last election. And I, you know, I'm not sure I, I don't think I knew this then, but looking back, I think I was developing. I think I knew that I didn't really have the fire in my belly to do another door to door campaign. And if you're not, and that would have been 20 years if I ran again. And I think I knew that it was the time for me to pass the baton. And that, because if you don't want to go door to door, it's time for you to not run. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people don't know when it's time not to run again. Uh, And I was fortunate enough, of course, to transition to something else that was as purposeful for me as being in the General Assembly was. So, um, but no, I went door to door every campaign. Yeah. Okay. and so, what did you think of the election process when you first ran for the General Assembly? Well, after I got past that sort of, you know, tough primary slating process, you know, and I didn't come out, I never said I was against slating. Yeah. You know, what I said after I lost and even after I ran, and I went through slating after that, when I, because like every election after that in Marion County, I had to go through slate. Now, I had part of Hamilton County in my district too, and they did not slate. Uh, but I, my, my position on slating was, you know, that, it, that slating was, you know, allow the precinct committee to be involved. But if someone, you know, continued to run, and, and, you know, there was a good chance that, you know, they, you, you shouldn't discourage someone from running, even if you endorsed someone who you wanted to win. And um, so I didn't, you know, I never made a big deal about that. I did I did take a position that caused me a little bit of trouble uh, with the caucus when I first came in, and that was that I didn't take any PAC money. Okay. And I made that, dis- and I held to that position the whole all the time that I was in the legislature. I'm not... I'm not sure if I was going to run again, whether I would take that position. I took that position then because some of my very best friends were lobbyists. Uh, I mean, John Hammond, I mean, you know, my, people that I had known forever, and I didn't really know how to differentiate my friendships. And, and it, you know, and it did sort of just, you know, I, I felt like I could raise enough money without that. But it was, you know, it was kind of, I was sort of criticized. The other thing that I sort of said is that I didn't understand why people from Marion County got the same per diem as people who had to come and pay to stay in a hotel. Oh, yeah. And I sort of said, it seems to me like there ought to be a differential. So I actually gave part of my per diem back, too. I never made a big deal about it, but I felt like I had to be true to what I said. But those were a little bit of of out-of-the-mainstream kinds of positions to take. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, now, what was your reaction when you first found out that you got elected to the General Assembly? Well, as I said, you know, we were, we were going up against some very, some headwinds, uh, and 
it was an incredibly exciting night. I mean, I had people working my campaign who had never worked on a campaign before. (laughs) And, um, you know, so that election night, um, once again, and and I'd say this not in a critical way at all, but if you have been in the caucus or you are supported by the caucus, you know, uh, there there is no involvement. Like Bob Garden, who was the leader, the first conversation I ever had with him was when he called me the night that I won. Because they were, I'm sure he was, they had sort of, even though John had not been in the Senate, he had been in the General Assembly. And so there was a sense that that's where the support was going to be. So I think there was quite a bit of surprise. I remember Luke, Kelly Con, Luke and I came in in the same year. And we, we have been and we still are very good friends. And he called me and said, you know, people kept telling me I should talk to John. Maybe I should have been talking to you because you won. Uh, So I think I was, I think it was a bit of a surprise that I was able to overcome the odds in Marion County and win. Yeah. And I I was a bit surprised too, even though, you know, I've always, I mean, even when Luger ran in 1976, I never thought about the day after the election. You know, it's kind of like you build up to this crescendo. And um, you just, you know, you just stay focused on what it is, the prize, what you're trying to get. And then the reality steps in. I was so tired that night. I think there was a party and I think I went home and went to bed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what were you thinking when you first walked into the state house for your first day in office? You know, I was in awe. I think as anybody is, when you walk into that building and you realize one, in my case, I didn't necessarily think it was going to turn out that way. And um, you don't you don't really know what you're doing, uh, for one thing. And uh, there's a, such a vibe, such a feeling of, in, the, in the building when you go in there. So uh, I think I was probably a bit overwhelmed, uh, certainly excited, um, you know, didn't know what I didn't know, um, but... Um, you know, I felt like I had carved out some issues that I thought were really important that would give me a chance to, um, you know, hopefully get on the education committee, which I did. And um, I served on the Judiciary Committee for all 17 years, even though I was an attorney. Uh, and that was a great place to be. It really taught me about the value of each, every word in a law. Sometimes the lawyers would get a little, you know, they would spend five hours on one word. And I kind of go, okay, guys, we've spent five hours on one word now. So... But overall, I think I was just excited, maybe a little overwhelmed, probably a little um, looking for who I could sort of have helped me. And uh, you know, they, did, they did training for new uh, members of the General Assembly, and that helped as well. Yeah, makes sense. Um, did you feel like you had a pretty good idea of how the you know, General Assembly operated, or do you think like there's a learning curve or... It was a learning curve. I knew how a bill became a law. Right. You know, I knew that in terms of theory, but I didn't know it in terms of practice. And uh, I didn't really understand, um, you know, the, the, I didn't understand the committee structure. So I, I, and I certainly didn't know the rules of the Senate. I mean, it's one thing to know how a bill becomes a law in terms of just kind of, it's another to know, you know, the Senate law, the Senate uh, rules. I mean, you're, you get a book about the Senate rules. I didn't know anything about that at all. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, how did I, don't you... think any, I don't think anybody who goes to the Senate, unless they've been a, you know, a lobbyist or somebody who's worked on the outside, I don't think anybody knows the rules of the Senate when they come in. Right, yeah, that makes sense. How did you keep track of the needs and wants of your constituents? Well, obviously, you know, we, it was very different back then. You know, we didn't have uh, email. Everything was letters or telephone calls when I first started. Of course, by the time I left, that had all changed. Uh, and so it was a very transitional time. So, you know, we did regular newsletters, but, the, but the, we did, you know, what we call, you know, you know, you know, third houses where we actually had, you know, all the, all the members in a, the particular districts would come together, usually sponsored by the chamber. So we met monthly with that, those kinds of groups. But the major ways were through telephone calls and letters, correspondence. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, how often would you say, let's see, actually... What was the first bill that you sponsored? Do you remember? Well, I remember one of the bills because it was um, it was when and when they when before Virginia left, they had created it was the creation of FSSA. It had not existed like that before. It had been a separate agency, and I, I can't even remember all of it. But there was really nothing substantive about the bill. But they brought me a bill that was. I would say at least a foot tall. Okay. <laughs> because they had to change everything in the code, every place to change the names. And so it was, I mean, it was primarily a name change bill. But I remember thinking, oh my gosh, that keeps. I remember one of the bills that I was going to carry that I didn't carry had to do with, um, you know, requiring helmets for motorcycles. And Somebody came to me and said, you do not want to carry this bill. The abate people will kill you. Yeah. <laughs> and so I knew nothing about that. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, I, I did a bill early on that provided immunity for good faith um, in terms of schools. If they had in good faith, what was happening, there was this concept of what they used to call, this is an awful way to refer to it, but passing the trash. So if you were, if, if you had done something as a teacher that was, you know, questionable and you left and went to work someplace else, generally what the, you know, the, the, the school district that you left, and this was true in other parts as well, but I'm just the school district that I was talking about, would basically just confirm the dates that you had worked there. They wouldn't say anything else for fear of being sued. So we provided some limited immunity if in good faith you had provided information. I remember that bill. Uh, and then, of course, I started right away with working in, uh, I was elected in 92. Uh, I mean, it was 93, 94, 95, which were major education reform bills. We had the first choice bill. We had the first charter bill. We had the IPS reform bill. We had, I mean, it was, you know, and that's where most of my focus was. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, how often would you say you had to work with the other party to get legislation done? You know, I worked with the other party all the time. And I, you know, to this day, if somebody asked me, um, you know, who was influential in my career there in terms of what I learned, I would put in the top five, Erlene Rogers. Because Erlene, I remember the very first year we did a bill on river, it's when we did riverboat gaming in 1993. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not morally opposed to, to gaming. I just thought it was a poor substitute for getting a kind of an education that would give you a better job. And she, of course, and Erlene was known as the mother of riverboats. 
And she said to me in her lovely way, she kind of pointed her finger at me and said, lovers, you just don't get it. If you're from where I'm from, Lake County, and you lost your job in the steel mill, isn't it better to have a job on a boat than no job at all? And I thought, well, you know, I really can't argue with her. And then through the years, she was, of course, she had been a former union steward, different party, different color, different part of the state, all of those. And yet we were, I mean, I still, I mean, we crossed text. Oh, and Billy Bro, who was opposite me on everything, fought me on everything. I mean, I still, you know, we still talk too, even though you know, Jean took over her seat. Um, and it turned out that, um, after, you know, I, it took seven years to pass the charter school law in Indiana. And uh, actually, Mike Gary was the one Democrat who supported it early on, and he was gone. And then Erling Rogers broke the, the stalemate with the Democrats and helped with O'Bannon. And her request of me is, she said, I will not support a charter school bill unless you require licensed teachers. I was trying to have some flexibility that if you wanted to have a Japanese teacher, or, you know, you wanted to have somebody from business come in. And so we created the transition teaching bill as a part of that bill, which said you either had to be a licensed teacher or participating in the transition to teaching program. Okay. And, and she took a lot of flack for supporting that charter school bill. And actually Greg Porter supported it too at that point. And so um, I would say, you know, it, you know, it was it was more necessary, but it was also when you have super majorities in parties, you end up cannibalizing within your own party a lot of times. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, and, and so I think that you know, we if, by virtue of the power of your ideas, you had to bring the other party around, and you had to accept the fact that I mean, use the charter school bill as an example. I didn't get the charter school bill that I wanted at the end. We got a great charter school bill, and you know, I think the idea. Of, if you had a chance to move an idea or pivot government the way that you wanted it to go, you understood that you were going to make concessions to get there. And that wasn't considered, that was considered a part of the process. And I think it still should be. Um, so yes, I worked, I worked, I mean, Greg Porter was the chair of the uh, house education committee during many of those years. And, you know, sometimes during committee, you know, he, you know, give me a tongue lashing a little bit, and then afterwards we'd go and talk about what we could do. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, thinking about the charter school legislation that uh, you worked on, um, you know, what were what was the big opposition points against it that people were making? Well, even though they were public schools, people didn't refer to them as public schools. And they, so you had... They were. They thought they would draw students away from their schools, okay. and uh, that the money would fall, you know, go to those. Even though charter schools got far less money than a traditional public school did. I mean, people still refer to charter schools, and they still don't refer to them as a public school. Um, and so, I think it was it was changed. There was fear about you know what it would do to the traditional school, to the funding, um, and uh, you know. I had kind of watched what happened in, you know, especially in Minnesota and some other states where, um, you know, to me, it was freedom with accountability. You gave provided schools greater freedom, but you held them accountable for what they did. Um, I thought, you know, these are, this is the public funding of schools. It may be a different model. They may not, you know, so it's, I think all of those things 
you know, caused people who had been longtime supporters of traditional public schools to think that they shouldn't support this new idea. Yeah. Um, so overall, then, what would you say were the interactions like between Democrats and Republicans when you served? I would say that the budget was always very divisive, and uh, you know, because it turned out to be a party line vote almost always, um, and because that's kind of where it all came down to in the final days. Um, but the majority of the bills that you passed there. You know, and this is probably still true. I mean, even though there aren't that many Democrats now, but the majority of the bills were were supported. They were not partisan. Um, you know, you you ended up always having some that would be, but a lot of them were. If you look at that, it'd be 50, 50 to zero the vote. Yeah, um, and that's still the case. I think on a lot of them. So, but even those that were controversial, um, I think there was. And I'm not going to say that there isn't still, because I think it's really wrong for people to go back and, based on their experience, judge the future or yeah. judge the past. You know, So I think that there was a real spirit of collegiality that I think uh, you know, played out in personal relationships that might not have been recognized sometimes in the way people talked at the mic, but, in, but when you weren't at the mic or when you weren't trying to make your case, you, under, you sort of understood. The best lesson that I learned along the way is if I knew where somebody lived and what they did and what their district was like, I understood why they voted the way they did, and even if I disagreed with them. Yeah. It gave you a place. So, you know, I, I always tried really hard to know enough about somebody's life journey, their background, and it almost always gave me clarity about their vote. Yeah, okay. Now... Did you see a, a change in the relationship between Democrats and Republicans over the course of your career, or was it about the same? Well, um, I don't think there was. I don't think there was a huge change in the time that I left in two thousand eight. I think you still saw. Um, you did. We did start to get some people who were elected in the last, probably, uh, you know, with the taking out of garden or the taking out of borscht. I mean, you started to see situations where people were running in a more, um, in a way that became, you know, people got taken out in primaries. Yeah. And, um, and I think, you know, the culture shifted, I think probably maybe a little bit on that may not be fair to say, but, you know, I always, I mean, I thought that first use the budget again as an example. If 80% of the budget was something that I supported, I would have been one of those who voted for the budget, you know, unless there was just a real deal killer for me. Then there, you know, there there could be an issue every once in a while that just either for purposes of your district or your own personal political pledge that you'd made at some point, you weren't going to move away from. But for the most part, you know, I would vote that. I had a couple, there were a couple people who came in later who would, who never supported a budget ever and wouldn't support a budget ever. Because it was it was sort of easy to vote against the budget because there was always going to be something in there that you could sort of campaign on that you voted against that. Yeah. Um, so I did see a little bit more of that. It seemed like people were a little bit more free agents and a little bit less um, a caucus perspective. Um, but but I don't know that that's true. That may have been just you know a few of the candidates who came in along the way. Seem like they behaved. Some people behaved a little bit more like they were 
in the executive branch, the legislative branch. Oh, okay. You know, back to what I said earlier, my feeling was if you were able to move government in the direction that you wanted, uh, that, you know, even if it, it wasn't going to be moving it all the way, it, but it was still moving it in the direction, and that meant that you were going to make concessions. Yeah. I'm sure it's still true, but I just don't think right now with the supermajority you have to make as many of those. Right. Okay. Um, what would you say were the differences between the House and Senate? Well, it's interesting because we used to always say the Senate would clean up everything from the House, but I don't think that's true anymore. Uh, I think that we would that there was, um, you know, that was the sort of the the way people would talk about send it to the Senate and they'll clean it up. Um, now I'm sure nobody would say that now, uh, but you know. We were probably bigger sticklers on germaneness. I know Garden was a huge, he was very much a stickler on germaneness. Um, and uh, so, I, and I think the whole cycle of a two-year cycle being in the House and a four-year cycle being in the Senate also contributes to that. I mean, the, the House members are, you know, they're constantly in a mode of elections. Yeah. Now, even if, even if you're in, a, I suppose if you're in a safe district, less so. But if you're in a competitive district, at least in the Senate, you know you got four years uh, to sort of make your case. Uh, you know, I also think that you started getting more issues that were that well, one issue could be a disqualifier. I used to say, if, you know, if I had voted, you know, the way that you would like me to, eighty-five or ninety percent of the time, and I disappoint you ten percent of the time, I hope you will still support me. Right. But I think there became a few more issues that were just disqual. I will never vote for you if you vote this way. And I understand that there are some issues that there could be something like that, but there seem to be more that fit into that category. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Um, how influential would you say party leadership was to sort of dictating legislation? Oh, it was very, it is very important. Okay, I'll tell you my other little story that yeah. my slating story because I so I've been the chair of the education committee and there was some discussion about who that uh, somebody else might run for pro temp and that other person was Murray Clark and I've known Murray I mean he went to school with my husband I've known him forever but I hadn't really done anything in this regard at all there were people out there and I won't name names that who were plotting new chairmanships that Garden was taken out and Murray won. But I think because of the perceived perception of me, Senator Garden, uh, when, when it, you know, and actually Murray got out of the race, but as soon as the elections were, were held, he removed me from my chairmanship of the Education Committee because he thought I supported Murray. Nobody else in the whole Senate was removed except me. And I, he put Luke Kenley in as the chair. You know, as I mentioned before, Luke and I were good friends. Now, I served sort of as the pseudo kept me as the ranking majority member so I, and I sort of because I had done everything in that committee and then the next time that Garten ran he put me back as chairman during my last election he probably provided more funding to me than anybody but um, so yes <laughs> the leadership matters a yeah. lot <laughs> and um, especially in you know even now you saw um, you know Mesmer was removed I mean you, you see the change that can take place with, um, and I think showing loyalty to leadership is important. So once again, th in this case, uh, the reason 
why I thought, and fairness is always in the eye of the beholder. The reason I thought that was unfair is that I actually hadn't done what some others had done in terms of that. I'd never talked to people about chairmanship, but, uh, you know, I think because of my personal relationship with Murray, uh, that I was, I, you know, they sent, a, they sent a message with me. And I said to several people who, in my career since then, both the slating example and that example, you know, that the hardest thing is when you think you've been treated unfairly. And uh, what that, but that is really the time that you will show your character. And it's not when things go well. It's when something didn't go well, and especially if, you know, it, at least if from your perspective, it wasn't fair. But that's the time to suck it up and, you know, and eventually, if you do, something will you it will be you will be reconciled in some way it's, you know and looking back that's happened in my life yeah no i understand yeah that's an interesting thing to i guess think about all the time is yeah the relationship to leadership and all the other people you're connected with and trying to balance that all out yeah i mean i'm, I'm you know i always supported leadership and I, and I would if i was there today and i think leadership is very important i think strong leadership is important yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. How influential would you say lobbyists were in the Indiana General Assembly? In my opinion, the best lobbyists were the ones who had the best information. I, as I mentioned, it wasn't to me about... I think they're very influential. I think it's a relationship business. And, uh, you know, and I think there are real pros about how they do it. Um, I would put John Hammond in that category. Uh, he was sort of the dean of the of the lobbyists, um, you know, I, I, when I look back again at some of my education reform bills, the people, the, the support that I got from this, you know, the Indiana Chamber of Commerce on many of those issues uh, was critically important uh, in terms of getting employer support. Um, so, yeah, I would say what I counted on lobbyists for is because they were tended to be lobbying on very specific issues, they, they should have had a real depth of knowledge. Now, what I would often say to a lobbyist or somebody else who would come in to talk to me about a bill is, and, and a good lobbyist would be able to answer this, I would say, now, when you leave and someone comes to talk to me who opposes what you said, what will they say and what would your answer be to that? Um, and, um, you know, good lobbyists could do that. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think they're, I think they're, they have a lot of influence. Yeah, okay. And so how did you know if like someone you felt like was trustworthy or not? Was it just kind of asking them questions and seeing their responses or? I knew most of them. Oh, okay. I mean, I really did. I mean, you worked there long enough, you know most of the people who are coming in. Now, the people you didn't know sometimes, you knew the, pro the, the professional lobbyists who were there are the ones who represented a particular association. The ones that you didn't know would be the ones that you should have listened to too, which would be individual citizens who would come in. And have, you know, something that they cared about, you know, grandparents' rights or, you know, whatever it might be. And there wasn't a, there wasn't a lobbying group to represent them. They were coming in. And so um, yeah, with a great passion for whatever it was, or they wouldn't be coming in there. Uh, in those cases, it was sometimes if you had the wisdom of Solomon, you wouldn't know for sure if you were dividing the baby the right way. Yeah, okay. Let's see. Uh do you think like things like campaign donations or gifts, do that have any influence on politicians when you served? Or was it something that you didn't really notice a problem? Or 
You know, I would never second guess someone who took a photo of a contribution and say that it, you know, and, and connect that to uh, an irresponsible vote. Yeah. Uh, I just wouldn't do that. I think uh, my sense is that, um, you know, the majority of people who I served with voted to represent their districts in the most responsible way they could. And the support from lobbyists, um, you know, may be important in terms of running a campaign. I didn't see an irresponsible way that people handled that in terms of their voting. Yeah. Okay. Um, how influential would you say things were like gerrymandering? You know, I really was not engaged with that, but we had, you know, redistricting a couple times. Pat Miller was always very involved, and then Sue Lansky, I think, was very involved when I was there also with the redistricting. And, um, you know, I know that, you know, how you drew those lines and, and, you know, whichever political party was in power, you know, somebody could maybe look at a line and go, why why is that? Why, why does that line look like that? Why does that district look like that? Um, my district... Um, you know, didn't change significantly in terms of the lines. What happened is the Hamilton County part of my district, which wasn't geographically as large, the population grew in that area. And so the Fishers area grew. And then, and now I think it's actually, you also had cities. I mean, you go back to Luger, for example, or, you know, metropolitan areas had Republican mayors. You don't see that very much anymore. And so you just see a big divide between Rural America, suburban, which t- could in some places be more purple. Yeah. Uh, although it still is probably leans a little bit in a lot of the suburban areas, still leans probably a little bit Republican. And then urban areas that are, you know, they're just, they are. So you, it, it divides more. I mean, I know the lines matter, but it really, the geography of the district is what's driving the election process. If you're in rural America right now, you know, you, know, you're, you tend to vote Republican. And, you know, it used to be rural America was very blue collar. You had companies there that were union members and there wasn't an allegiance necessarily. And in the same, vice versa, you had, you know, in cities, uh, you, you, you know, you, you had people who were getting elected who were Republicans. So I'm sure that, I don't know that I would, I'm sure, I know gerrymandering is people on everybody's mind right now. I have to be quite candid with you that, I was never really engaged with the drawing of the lines or those discussions. Right. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, interesting to see how like, uh, I guess the different demographic changes or whatever to different rural and uh, urban areas. It's interesting to see over time. Um, Yeah, I think that's really happened and I don't think that's healthy, but I think it's happened. Yeah. Let's see. What would you change about the legislative process based on your experiences? Well, that's an interesting question, one that I've never really contemplated. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think maybe, I don't, I think, I'm not in favor of term limits. Okay. But I do think that having someone as a chair of a committee for more than a decade, maybe, I mean, maybe even more than that. I don't know. I, I think that. I think what we've seen is the reason why I was never in favor of term limits in the legislative branch, though I do appreciate them in the executive branch, is probably the same reason why I would consider, though I don't know that I'm right about that, should we consider some sort of a limitation on the length of time someone could be the chair of a committee? Mm, okay. Yeah. 
I don't think that will be supported, and I don't think it'll ever happen, but I do think <laughs> there is a lot of power that is in the chair of a committee that um, you, I think you'd have to have it long enough because it's, you, you, I mean, I would, I'm not in favor of like a chairmanship of a committee. Some states have done it either in term limits for election or term limits for chairmanship for like two or four years. I wouldn't be in favor of that at all. I think you, I think your chairman needs to know more than the people who are coming in and lobbying the chairman. And so I, I'm not talking about short-term limits. I'm talking about maybe term limits after a decade. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be interesting. I mean, yeah, I think that's probably also something that a lot of people outside of politics are not aware of is just how influential chairs are over mm-hmm. stuff. So, and you want them to be knowledgeable. Yeah, you need to, so they can't be snookered by people. Sure. So you, that, that's why I don't like really short term limits in that uh, for this standpoint. But um, but I do think that, and then you know, I guess the other thing that uh, I there's no way to arbitrarily change this. But I think we would be better served if we had more women in the legislature. Right. Yeah. I, can't, I can't change that except through elections. But, you know, when I went to the Senate, um, we had subject matter specialists. And it was interesting. Almost all of them were women. Bev Guard was environment. Every, every, you, you knew what she knew about that. Pat Miller was health. You knew what she knew about that. Connie Lawson was local government. I was education. I mean, you, you had people who really dug deep on the issues. And I'm not saying that... <laughs> I'm not saying that's gender specific, but I think we were, we benefited from that kind of, uh, you know, kind of it wasn't an old boys kind of thing at all. We were right. Maybe, I don't know why, but we just we were sort of nerds about issues. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, let's see. Thinking of uh, some more big picture questions, uh, what was the most controversial legislative issue when you served? Well, let's see, maybe, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the labor bill where we had when O'Bannon was governor. Um, I'm I'm not coming up with the right words for it now. Um, I'm thinking labor law reform, but that was the national bill. Um, I'm blanking on what it was. I can remember seeing thousands of people outside. You're going to have to give me a break on this one because I can't come up no, with that's, it. No, that's right totally now. fine. Um, you know, see. You know, the education bills were controversial. Yeah. Um, charter school bill was controversial. That was probably, for me, the most controversial. The budget bills were always partisan. I don't know that I would consider them controversial. Um, you know, this predated... Anything sort of a, I mean, we probably had, I'm trying to remember, there were probably abortion bills, but not to the extent that this last session, um, you know, um, this, I wish I could think of this labor bill, because I know that's the one that I keep going back to, that was, it wasn't free, it wasn't, I don't know, I, I, I'll, if I think of it, I'll, I'll email you and tell you what <laughs> yeah that's fine no no problem um i mean you already talked about charter schools which obviously was a uh, one that got debated quite a bit i guess um what about uh, like taxes were there a lot of debates about taxes and stuff yeah because we had property tax reform during that time which was big in terms of the yeah uh, the property tax reform that happened during the 
I remember during my, I think my last election, it was the election that was around the time that Bart Peterson lost his mayor of Indianapolis to uh, property taxes. The reform came after that because like where the area that I represented, had, which is the center of it, was kind of reading Kessel where I live, and the property taxes had just escalated during that time, and then you saw property tax reform after that. You know, if ever you would try to raise sales tax, anything, you know, that was going to be tax-related would be controversial. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, let's see, so how would you summarize your time then overall as a uh, legislator? I think it was a privilege. Uh, I think it was, you know, you deal with, you know, this whole range of issues. On any day, you could be dealing with tax policy, environmental policy, education, prisons, whatever. And so um, I, I loved that. Ultimately, when I decided to leave the Senate, um, I knew that, that, that this next chapter in public service for me, I wanted to dig deeper on the issues that I thought were the game changers. So there's an intoxication that comes from dealing with all of that, those issues. And I love that. I love, you know, I, the, the, what I saw is the collegiality of the people I served with. They were purpose driven. I love, you know, I love that. Um, so I have nothing but respect for the institution or the time or, or appreciation for the time that I spent there. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Um, what lessons did you learn from your experiences? Uh, you know, know your issues, um, you know, treat people the way you want to be treated, understand what they, where they came from and their backgrounds, and you'll understand why they vote the way they do. Um, you know, you know, lead, but lead with, um, a sense of, you know, that, uh, you aren't always right, that you're still willing to keep listening. Um, so, you know, I think... You know, it's almost as simple about it as it is in everything in life. You know, treat people the way you want to be treated. Understand what you're doing. So, you know, there's no substitute for, for knowledge and competence and integrity and character and empathy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, did you have any regrets as a legislator? Well, that's another interesting question. Um, no. I don't think so. I mean, I regret it sometimes when I lost a bill. Yeah, you know, sure. And I, but then I, you know, try another time. Uh, uh, I don't have any significant regrets at all. Yeah, okay. Um, what would you say was your proudest moment? I would say probably the passage of the charter school bill in 2001 would be right up there. Um, and I think, um, I think my service, I think I was proud, not of a specific issue, maybe proud isn't the right word, grateful to have been on the Judiciary Committee for all those years. Sure. Because I think that I was a better legislator because I served on that committee. Um, and um, so that helps. So I think, you know, there are multiple you know, education bills that I could chronicle. So I would say overall, it's the education legislation and um, and the opportunities that I saw that, that education had to really close income gaps and give people better opportunities to have, you know, 
a more meaningful life. And so making this relationship between education and human flourishing in life, I think, is what I try to spend most of my time working on. Yeah, okay. Um, what advice would you give to future legislators or even current legislators? I would go back to, you know, when you're trying to work with each other, know them personally as well. So know their life journey so that you can understand why they think what they do, and it gives you a place to build some sort of consensus around especially controversial issues. So spend the time, invest the time in understanding people's backgrounds. And the other thing I would say is you're not going to be an expert on everything, but, you know, carve out those places where either your experiences that you brought with you or your interests or your district's interests make you spend more time on those. And they'll tend to be the ones that probably come through your committee. So, um, you know, develop expertise. I mean, I think there's no substitute for that. Um, and so, you know, there's the whole component of how you treat people, and there's the whole component of how you do your job. And so learn that, learn the issues, know the issues. You know, ask when, when somebody comes to talk to you, especially a lobbyist, you know, you need to know enough that you're asking the good questions so you don't get pulled around so they, you know, that they, they can, you know, surprise you at the end and you didn't know something. So I think knowledge, competence, Character, integrity, empathy. Those are the things that I would recommend that you work toward. Right. Okay. Uh, what, in your opinion, is the most important work of the Indiana General Assembly? Probably the budget. You yep. know, at the end of the day, you're deciding when you vote on the budget every other year. If I was looking at a singular thing, you know. Now, if I'm looking at issues, just because of my own belief, I think, you know, uh, you know the relation the relationship between a strong education system and a strong economic development system, and all the issues that relate to that, I think, are critically important. But if you look at the responsibility, the role of the legislature, you know, we have the the you know responsibility to establish the budget and how we're going to spend, you know, those billions of dollars every year. So I think that has to be, you know, a, the critical focus. What would you say does the public not know about the Indiana General Assembly? <laughs> well, with, you know, I don't want this to sound cynical. <laughs> <laughs> but I think they probably, and it's understandable. I mean, if you're going about your life and you're raising a family and you're working, um, you know, what you remember, maybe you learned, unless you've had some reason to be in that building or understand What's going on? You have a, you probably have a fairly limited understanding, which is why I think civic literacy and, and making sure that people have an understanding of how this government was established and you know what federalism is and what the three branches of government are and what what they're called to do and and what your responsibility as a citizen is in terms of the voting. Um, so I think what they probably. Uh, have limited understanding of is, you know, just how the process works from, you know, when you have an idea for a bill, you know, 
what is the path that it goes? I mean, what's the likelihood that it will pass? Probably not very. I mean, we still file all these bills that never get passed. So I think they they probably have a somewhat, increasingly, I think, a skepticism about not the, not the value of what's being done there, but I think they are skeptical that people in political life really understand them and that there is a disconnect between what we do there and what they do. And one of the things that I used to always do, whatever group it would be in, whether it was the fourth grade class coming in because they did Indiana history or with the AARP, I would often say, you know, I many of you may think that what we do here isn't important to you. And then depending on the group, I would say, let me tell you what the General Assembly has done in the last two years that impact your life. Yeah. We decided how many days you would go to school, kids. We would decide we decided whether we were gonna fund preschool. We decided, you know, what the you know, when I would go to something on Medicare, you know, just to try to show that while you may not daily be engaged in this, decisions are being made that impact your life. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, it seems like a lot of people take for granted uh, how much state government plays a role in their life. Yeah, but they, they and it's, it's understandable. You know, it is understandable. Your people are busy with their lives, running their businesses, working. They're not going down there to figure that out all the time. But they need to know enough about the process and the candidates that they know why they're voting for who they're voting. Sure. Yeah. Um, so let's see, last few questions then here. How has the state of Indiana changed over the course of your lifetime? Well, there's been a demographic shift. If you just look at the, the demographics, you have a much higher Hispanic population in the state. And when you look at the rising students, in fact, the number of Hispanics in the state soon, and maybe now, not population at large, but school population, Hispanic will, will pass the number of blacks. Uh, you've had a population growth in the state, but not in many areas. So if you look at the rural counties and you look at the change of where where people live, uh, you've seen a, uh, and this is, of course, one of the things that I care about, you've seen fewer men engaging with education beyond high school in Indiana. Hmm. There's been a huge drop in college going rates, and that's primarily a story of men. Um, uh, so, you know, you've seen... Um, uh, I think as a, as a state, um, the change in uh, manufacturing and the, you know, we're still the most manufacturing intensive state in the nation, but those jobs have changed dramatically. So you have fewer people working in them as they have become. So the change in, uh, you know, manufacturing, I think, has made a huge change in that. And then the other thing that the big change is happening, not just in Indiana, I think that the manufacturing issue is really, it is proportionally bigger in Indiana and the implications for that than many other states. The technological changes that have happened that are impacting everything, that's across the board, across every place, but certainly influencing everything from the way we communicate in the legislature to how people get their information to, you know, all of those ways which you know. So I think those are just a few of the changes. Yeah, okay. Well, let's see, last question then. What do you want the people of Indiana to know about their influence on the General Assembly? That they, that 
people listen to them. I mean, I was as likely to listen to one person who would come in and talk to me about something as I would to the, you know, the State Chamber of Commerce. And that, you know, people will listen to them. And that uh, their, their stories, their narratives matter. So they should know that that building is their building. Uh, and that they should feel that that way, that they should have feel like they have access to their legislators. They should know that they have an obligation to vote and to vote responsibly by knowing who the candidates are. Um, and that, you know, the, what, who they elect, it's going to make a difference in their lives. And so there is a connection between citizenship. I mean, you know, this country was formed on we the people. The preamble to the Constitution is we the people. And it wasn't we state government or we federal government. It was we the people. And where I work now at Sagamore, that is critical to what we do. We, we, it's not that we don't think it's important what happens in Washington, D.C. or state capitals, but we think what really is the preservation of democracy is an empowered and enlightened electorate. Yeah. And so I guess I would want them to feel that responsibility. Yeah, okay, sure. Well, is there anything that I didn't ask about that you wanted to mention? I can't imagine that there is. <laughs> well, that's good, I guess. 